Hello and welcome to another Corrin stream. I'm your host, Joe Magician, and today we'll be talking about another one of the Bash Brothers of the Brotherhood Without Banners, the butter to Barrack's toast, the worst red priest in the Seven Kingdoms. Well, at least until Melisandre shows up. She does a pretty bad job being a red priest, as it were, um, but not as bad as Thoros for quite a long time. That's right, Thoros Omir, as he is known, a character that starts off almost seeming like he's just in the story for comic relief. That later becomes an integral part of the Riverlands plot as he intersects somehow with all roads leading to Stoneheart's revenge and perhaps the Red Wedding 2.0. So there was a there was a question when I put this up a couple a few weeks ago. I was like, should I do a stream on Thoros or Beric? And people are like, well, why don't you just do them both at the same time? Which bold of you to say that. But also, I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting things about Thoros on his own as a character, especially since I mean. Spoiler alert, his story is continuing while uh, Barracks is not. So there's quite a lot to look forward to, how I react to things and what kind of role he has, because George has seemingly heaped a ton of importance on Thoros. He's interacting with major, major characters all throughout these books, surviving and still going. So the Lord of Light or George R. R. Martin, as he's sometimes known, uh, has some has plans for Thoros Amir, and we're gonna get into that. See what he's see what he wants or what he doesn't want, which is kind of the thing that's going on with Stoneheart at the moment. Um, I got an opening quote here. It's actually one of my favorites from the books. It's a lot of people are not a huge fan of a feast for crows. This comes from Brienne's chapter, but I think this one really gets at kind of the core of what's going on with that entire book and why you should pay attention to it. So this is from Thoros. He says. Justice. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights, and heroes, but some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Yeah, that that's kind of summing up uh, A Feast for Crows in a, in a fairly direct way. Let's baby down a little bit. Really frame that ass waffle. <laughs> uh, mods. Oh yeah, there was a problem with YouTube where they couldn't post the links for some reason. Somebody post a link to, will be something funny <laughs> to post a link to. Post a link to, a mod post a link to a funny video of a puppy. See what happens to it. Oh, PayPal is working. Uh, before we get going, I just wanted to also say thank you to the uh, Super Chats that came through our way and the uh, PayPal links. Thinking of the PayPals, Aaron just linked it in chat. Um, from Danny McKay, his normal happy Saturday with peace sign right back at you, buddy. Also, before the stream started, uh, Ramona Zanfir with 10 pounds. Thank you so much, Ramona. Lemmy B with $25. Wow, Lemmy. There we go. Uh, here's her great live stream. Long live Thoros and his flaming sword. Yeah, Thoros is going to be a hard one to kill. Um, and uh, $25 from Morley. Here's the Thoros' flaming sword and magical ability to resurrect people with the last kitsch. Last kiss. Last kitsch? Kitsch doesn't. Kitsch is something different. Which he did with Beric on multiple occasions. Great friend and drinking companion King Robert. Put a pin in that one. We're going to come back to that whole thing. This toast is for you. Yes. Raise one to Thoros. He would definitely enjoy it. Thank you very much to you guys. Um, more Lemmy, Ramona, and Danny. I appreciate it very much. But there, today is a special day unrelated to Song of Ice and Fire. Well, kind of related to a Song of Ice and Fire. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, out there in the real world today, outside of these walls, my books and the beer stuff, the one the well, not really one, uh, the wonderful and both lovely 
uh, Chloe of Girls on Canon and Emmett Booth of Not a Cast are getting married. Somewhere out there, they will be tying their vows. Um, I was trying to think about what if if Chloe's going to wear a regular wedding dress or she's going to cosplay as like Ashara or um, or Liana Stark out there. But um, yeah, the, Emmett and Chloe are just wonderful people. It's always been a pleasure to know them. They're and they're also honestly a lot of fun. If you ever find them at events or something like that, hang out with them. They are they are truly the best. So here's to you guys, Emmett and Chloe. Enjoy your uh, enjoy your marriage today. I believe that there's there's a somebody crashing the wedding out there. Some kind of fish guy who thinks he's a uh, Brendan Blackfish. Yeah, cheers, you guys. To the happiness of you two. Blessings on your house. I wonder if it'd be House Booth or House House Ketchum or it'd be Booth Ketchum. No, no, Chloe would go first. Would be Ketchum Booth. <laughs> Yeah, if you see him on Twitter, um, I retweeted them earlier today. But yeah, a very happy day for both of them. Jeff was trolling everybody on Twitter. He's like, oh, I'm going to see George. I'm going up to the mountains. I'm pretty sure he was on his way to their wedding because <laughs> that's how he rolls. Um, uh, one other thing that's going on at the moment is last stream, I announced the start of a another uh, giveaway. It was supposed to go live with my video, but I messed it up. So I didn't end up doing it, but I did it during the stream last time. Uh, let me post the link here. Um, the, it's a, a illustrated edition of a storm of swords that's been signed by George R. R. Martin. Got that baby right here. So it's got the, um, all the awesome artwork in it. And of course the signature from Germ himself. So all you have to do to enter is go to that link. Um, I, you don't actually have to do anything else. Uh, if you want to earn more entries, there's different ways like retweeting a thing or like, what else did I put in there? Um, oh yeah. One of them was how you found my YouTube channel shocking amount of you came from in deep geek and also um just random youtube recommendations so way to go to that one um but yeah i also wanted to announce the winner from last week i said if we got to 200 uh likes on the video i would give away a t-shirt um so everyone had to go into the chat and say how they think lady stoneheart will die in the winds of winter and the winner is actually here in the chat uh i see her there uh daisy k um i believe she said that aria will be the one to give the gift to Lady Stoneheart and end her reign of terror. So um, DM each other somehow, maybe on Twitter or something like that. I'll send you a code and you can get your own ass waffle shirt <laughs> or spooky tree or wizard hat, you know, whatever you feel like. So congratulations, Daisy. Yes, Carl Car Snark Strash and like the subscribe button so you can get me to 20K subs. Yeah, my channel's gone up by about a little bit under a thousand subscribers since the video went live. So Apparently, I should make more videos is the uh, message here. So <laughs> I finished reading the book for the super secret upcoming project. So that was a doozy. That was a doozy of a thing to read uh, for the next video. So get ready for that one. It's going to be a little different than you guys are used to, but hopefully fun. And as always, uh, slam that MF and like button, as Carl Karsnark was saying. Um, oh, oh, go back. Uh, let's see if we get to... As usual, 150 likes. I'll put on my old wizard hat, 175. Um, put on the germ hat and 200. If we get there, we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, slam that like button. Appreciate it. Uh, 100 people watching so far. Actually, hang on. Let me check it out. Is Radio Westeros streaming today? Radio Westeros. Their Streams of Winter series. Uh, I think they do every other week, so I don't think they're going this week. Bit of a bummer. No hints on what I read that will make that I'm making a video out of. It's a surprise. I'm not going to tell you, um, but it was a, a wild goddamn ride. Holy hell. <laughs> that thing 
is something else. Um, oh, that's right. There's also Ice and Fire Con going on right now. They're doing their digital version. They were playing, um, oh, what's it called? Um, Quiplash last night with uh, Asheo is running it on their channel. They're doing a bunch of panels. So, yeah, when uh, when we're done here, slide on over into those uh, Ice and Fire Con DMs or I guess their YouTube channel and see what they got. It seems like they have a lot of uh, good people. They're having a lot of fun. So I'm sure that's probably where Radio Westeros is. They were on the uh, the Quiplash last night. I was watching. I just didn't want to disrupt it with my um, with my snarkiness. So with that out of the way, oh, thank you for the follow uh, King's Blood 321. Uh, let's go into the old bad, bad priest Thoros, the worst red priest, as he says. Um, so as with most of these characters, I think it's instructive to go into the backstory that George has created because it explains quite a lot about how he's using them, what he's playing off of, where they're starting from, that kind of thing. Uh, and Thoros has a story that is uh, kind of uncomfortably familiar to quite a lot of others <laughs> out there especially characters from Essos. Um, it is the idea that parents give away or sell their children to these quote unquote holy organizations or just institutions out there. Um, in Westeros, that sometimes happens where extra sons and daughters are shipped off to the, the septas or they're shipped off to be maesters. Uh, the Night's Watch sometimes, maybe sellsword companies, but it's very common, at least from what we've seen from George's uh, created characters from Essos for the poor to essentially when they can't afford to take care of their kids, they hand them over to like the red temple, um, the, the bearded priests, that kind of thing. Uh, we have a quote here from Thoros. He says, I was no very holy priest. I was born youngest of eight. So my father gave me over to the red temple, but it was not the path I would have chosen. I prayed the prayers and I spoke the spells, but I also lead raids on the kitchens. And from time to time they found <gasps> girls in my bed. Thoros, no, such wicked girls. I never knew how they got there. That's one of the things that um, going back and rereading a bunch of stuff about Thoros is he's actually a, he's a fairly funny character. There is a, a lot of dreariness in the Song of Ice and Fire and especially in A Feast for Crows. But um, George gives Thoros a pretty a pretty good sense of humor, um, kind of like Tyrion, kind of like uh, kind of like Bronn in the show a little bit. He's often teasing people. He has a great sense of humor. He gets along easily with people. But this is a pretty not awesome story. <laughs> For Thoros to start off with. Um, as I said earlier, Ario Hota got a similar kind of story when he was the youngest son. They couldn't afford to keep him, so he was sold to the bearded priests. Ario Hota had no choice in it, as Thoros did not. He was trained to be a slave soldier and then sold essentially to uh, Lady Melario of Norvos and ended up pounding his way into Dorne. Melisandre of Ashai also has a similar story, although we don't quite have as much of the background. But there's a quote people like to talk to point to in A Dance with Dragons where she talks about her her entry into the into the larger world of Essos. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. A fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie, she heard a woman cry. A man's voice called. Lot seven. She was weeping and her tears were flame and still she drank it in. Uh, people have made the connection that this is Melisandre talking about her being sold in a slave auction. So, yeah, that's uh, it's kind of a running theme. I mean, the other characters we meet, um, even within Daenerys's camp, she meets quite a lot of people who have been sold in slavery. That's just a thing in Essos. It sucks. And but that's 
there's a weirdness to it. The institutions seem to really prey on this. Like there's there's an idea, I think, within the slave trade in the books in the show that it's always the slave masters. It's always the evil men in Slavers Bay or the Dothraki that are behind this thing. But then when you look at these organizations, you look at the bearded priests, you look at the Red Temple, you look at whoever bought Melisandre, presumably the Red Temple, too. Clearly, the buyers are not just um, like rich assholes. It is institutionalized across the board. Um, not great. Oh, super chat here from Esteban Estrada. I'm catching up late here, but cost my caught my first live stream and catching up on the old content. So has a lot of people I've been seeing uh, comments from stuff I put up years ago. So um, fairly new to Song of Ice and Fire. Thanks for the content. Oh, welcome, Esteban. Um, yeah, a lot of people are watching those old videos and streams, much to my chagrin. I'm like, ooh, that was not a good video. Um, I'm glad people like them, though. And along with Esteban, I am sure a lot of you are new. This is your first stream. You may have caught up with the Stoneheart video, all that other kind of stuff. So, hey, welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, I thought there were no children born in Shy Melisandre. Uh, takes the of a shy thing for, I think, because she trained there to become a shadow binder. Um, there's not really a lot of information about who she was. She clearly changed her name if she's Melanie and now she's Melisandre. So she has changed her identity quite a lot. There's a lot of, um, <laughs> there's a lot of lying around Melisandre. Um, Aaron M says in the chat, once again, I'd like to mention my mom just called Thoros the bun guy in the show. Long live the man bun. Yeah, they gave. <laughs> for us a sweet man bun in the later seasons not quite sure why um maybe a choice by the actors uh it certainly was a sweet man bun he rocked that shit uh we don't know that melisandre has red hair because of the the whole glamour thing which we're actually going to get to in a little bit again put a pin in that one we're going to come back to it so the red temple itself the faith of lore is explicitly a slave organization they actively participate in the slave trade and they primarily purchase children. We learn from the, the great uh, Temple of Light in Volantis that everyone that works there is a, was apparently bought as a child as a slave and then trade in the or, in training organization. Um, they will become priests and priestesses. They will become servants. And they will sometimes join the organization known as the Fiery Hand. Ooh, hand on fire. Uh, that is essentially their warrior sons. This is their military organization. They haven't really come up in any way uh, in the story so far. Some people think that the Iron Hand will have a role in the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring, that maybe they'll follow Daenerys west in order to fight the darkness. Not really sure about that one. Um, and one of the ways that they mark their slaves, which is something that, again, this is something strange about Thoros, um, slaves in Essos are given tattoos normally to designate their jobs, where they're from, that kind of stuff. So, uh, like, for instance, I, I looked up some of them. Some of them are not great. If, for instance, if you are a stable worker, your slave tattoo is that you have a horse head across your chest. Cool. If you have flies on your cheeks, that apparently means that your job is to clean up horse and elephant uh, from the streets. That's that's a, that's a thing there by George. The the Red Temple and the and the faith itself does the same kind of thing. Um, the fiery hand, they get tattoos of flames across their cheeks, whereas the priests and priestesses, they get much more tattooing. They get it not only across their cheeks, but also their chin and across their forehead. We see this more directly uh, with Makoro. He actually has all these tattoos on his face. Benero, the high priest of 
Volantis has them as well. That's kind of where we're going to get to um, the strangeness of Thoros. And this is actually a question from uh, Eric F., one of my patrons. He says, when Thoros was given to the Red Priest, was he a slave like Mel? Apparently not. Now, Thoros is from Mir, so I, I'm guessing he did not practice in the Red Temple. So it, I, don't, I don't really know, but they, they did not give him slave tattoos like everyone else does which I get think suggests that he did not he was not at the uh the great temple of light and volantis that maybe he was at a local chapter in mirror or something like that because yeah he doesn't have them there are no tattoos on thoros all the other red priests we meet have them except melisandre but this is sort of the thing i was talking about with we're going to take that pin back down talking about melisandre's appearance and like does she have red hair what does she really look like well, she's wearing a glamour, which means that nobody knows what she really looks like. It's quite possible that underneath her glamour that she has the tattoos of flame across her face like Benara Makoro does. She just hides them. Um, it's very it's it seems pretty clear she's hiding her age um, and largely appearance. So this is really setting Thoros apart from the rest of the Red Priests that he is very much different. Giving someone over to the Red Priests and not being bought as a slave is just unusual. Why they didn't give him the tattoos anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's because like a status thing. It's not not a lot of information on this. This may be like a retcon by George that he made Thoros before he came up with the rest of it. Like, I mean, he, he absolutely did. Thoros appears in a Game of Thrones, whereas we don't meet much of the Red Priests until much later. And we definitely don't hear about the tattoos for quite a long time. So I'm wondering if this is just a continuity error. If George had written Thoros from the beginning, like the rest of the Red Priest, maybe he would have had them. But he just doesn't and George isn't going to fix it. So I think we're just going to have to live with it unless you want to come up with like some kind of logical explanation that because he was a free man and not a slave, he didn't get them. Okay, I think he just kind of forgot or he made up something he liked later and decided not to retcon. Melisandre at least gives him an out where if she ever drops her glamour, we may very well see them. So that's kind of cool. And one thing we learn about the the Red Temple and its organization is that they actually have this. This is kind of bizarre. They have their own like sex workers. Basically, they have their own brothels. They uh, they buy they buy sex workers and they keep them as slaves uh, within the Red Temple, presumably for, I guess, generating money. But I guess for use of the Red Priests and the priestesses themselves not really clear why they're doing this but this kind of um it sets up the the red temple and the faith of lore as very very different in terms of the the faith of the seven as we know it because there's not really a sense of moral reform or any kind of like really like moral core to the faith of lore it seems to be more or less um organized around defense it's almost like a like an soic knight's watch kind of organization where the, the reason they exist is not because they're like interpreting some old book about like like the like Hugo of the Hill and the um, the seven pointed star. It seems to be that they're just kind of following the ancient prophecy of Zara High coming again. And their main purpose is to start the dark is to stop the darkness, but not really in any way to enforce um, like any kind of real. Well, not, I'm not sure. It's not really they're not really trying to enforce any kind of religious teachings on the world in general they just want to make sure it doesn't end in darkness which is um very interesting i wonder if it's george just like running out of he doesn't want to explore the faith or lore too much or maybe there's more of that elsewhere but we don't really see it um as i said there they follow an ancient prophecy out of a out of a shy the prophecy of zora high he's the ancient hero who apparently drew Lightbringer in his um 
his magic sword to destroy the darkness long ago, and he's going to return to do again. Everything else in the Red Temple essentially exists just to support this goal. Why do they have, um, why do they buy child slaves? Why do they run a sex working thing on the side? Why do they really not care what their priests do? Because they're essentially taking a, a kind of utilitarian approach to it where they're just, they're just like, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to stop the darkness, we will do it, which is kind of, um, not a great thing for, <laughs> for such a powerful organization that they don't, they, don't, they will work with anybody. They don't care. They will do anything. And you kind of see that, um, most directly with Melisandre herself, where, the ends will justify the means for her. She will do anything to make sure that Stannis, a.k.a. Zora High, as she believes it, will fight, will stop the darkness and preserve the world as we know it. Um, that seems to be the overriding message from the Red Temple. The only thing they really hate is people worshiping other gods. That's the kind of it, because they think of it as a distraction from their goals. That if everyone was on board with the Lord of Light, the darkness would never return. Therefore, mass proselytizing and literally buying people and indoctrinating them, whatever it takes. That's their whole their whole thing, <clears throat> as you can imagine. And as Thoreau said early on, he felt very, very little attachment to that mission in the faith because it's not really a faith as we know. It. It's just kind of like this weird long term goal. It's almost like a doomsday cult. They're like doomsday is coming. We got to get ready. It's like, what does that mean? I don't know. Just we got to be ready. Got to be ready to fight the darkness. Ooh, <laughs> like that would be my reaction. It's like, oh, do you know when this is coming? No. What are we going to do when it shows up? Uh, this guy's going to show up with a flaming sword and he's going to fight the darkness. He is. How do you know? Uh, we'll figure it out when we get there. We just got to make sure we're powerful enough to do it. OK, <laughs> this is how it goes. Um, and again, this makes a lot of sense. As he says, he did not want to become a red priest. He has no real he has no real faith in R'hllor itself. It was forced on him. And then his story about like, oh, he used to raid the kitchens. He used to find girls in his bed. It's like, well, he's just kind of being like a normal guy. But none of this kicked him out of the faith. Like he's he's not exiled. He's not a former red priest. He is still a red priest, despite doing things that would probably get a septon kicked out of the faith of the seven. So, yeah, they they seem pretty lax on how you support the mission, I guess, as long as you're supporting it in some way. Um, uh, and Close says they seem to be enforcing an us versus them thing. They believe that only R'hllor can stop the great other. So everyone not in the faith are disposable. Basically, they view the rest of the world as converts to be. And it is just a it's a religion of expansionism. That's all it is. There's nothing really behind it. <laughs> I think this is one of those criticisms that George gets a lot where his religions and universe are really not fleshed out very well. Uh, Faith or lore really doesn't. But getting back to Thoros, his exploits within the Red Temple did not get unnoticed. It's, he didn't get in trouble, but they also did not like forget he was doing it. <laughs> uh, but Thoros essentially says that they ha he got sent to King's Landing for as like they were tired of him. Uh, this is the quote here. Um, I had a gift of tongues, though, and when I gained to the flames, well, from time to time I saw things. Even so, I was more bothered than I was worth. So they sent me to King's Landing to bring the Lord's light to the seven besotted, seven besotted Westeros. King Aerys so loved fire, it was thought he might make a convert. Also, alas, his pyromancers knew better tricks than I did. So that's Thoros's interpretation of why he got sent there. But when we know him as a character is that it seems far more likely to me that um, they recognized in Thoros that he might be somebody that's really good at, well, marketing. He's a naturally likable person. He gets along with tons of people. He's gregarious. Um, 
He makes friends quickly. If you're going to send somebody to try to convert a king, making friends with them or making friends with people around them is a good way to get them people who would normally be not receptive to your message, receptive to it. Thoros is this kind of like <laughs> the kind of dude that you'd send out. Um, what, What's the right way of saying this? Like a marketing guy that like takes the clients out on the town and goes out on boats and like just makes friends with them. And that's kind of what he ends up doing when he gets there. Um, he's a he's just a very good candidate for sending out to proselytize for the faith of R'hllor. Uh Eric F. actually asked this question on, uh, on the patron sack. He said that the red priest ever attempt to recall Thoros after his initial failed mission. Is he like Mel, a rogue or heretic to the high priest? No, it doesn't seem like he was ever recalled. In fact, they seem to actively support him because he continually buys um, new swords He's able to joust. He's able to fight in melees. He's able to go out and drink all he wants. So, I mean, he found a patron eventually in Robert, Robert Baratheon, but it seems like the Red Priests were still actively supporting him in his mission. And it's like, yeah, it makes sense. He's a, yeah, he's a, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Sasuke and Bryson Chung say a schmoozer. Yeah, he's a great schmoozer. It's a long-term strategy. Yeah, high charisma stats. So he's not exiled. He's not doing his own thing like Melisandre. Clearly, they sent him with a plan. Melisandre's doing her own thing. Um, and, you know, converting an entire continent or island to a faith is really hard to do. So it's not like they expected instant results. Like, like Thoros is going to show up and then instantly the entire island and the faith of the seventh could be done and the old gods are done because Thoros did such a great job. It's like, well, you have to get yourself integrated into the court. You have to get people to know you. You have to like you have to start small and move out. And Thoros is a really good candidate for that from what we know about him. <laughs> Yes, Melisandre had her own conversion methods that works specifically on Stannis. But I mean, this is I mean, I'm sure they also did not particularly enjoy Thoros, um, that he seemed to be not that enthusiastic. But you never know. Um, two birds with one stone, maybe convert Westeros, but also like that guy can uh, get out of here. And this is also an important thing about if you think about in terms of marketing, why they would send him the faith. The Red Temple is really antithetical to what's going on in Westeros. Why? Because they're child slavers. They have all their members have these weird tattoo things across their face. They burn people alive. They buy people. They trade them. They they like they actively support horrible, horrible practices as an Essos. And Thoros is kind of like just like a good face you can put on that. He doesn't have the tattoos. He's not a slave himself. He's gregarious. He's good at schmoozing. It's like, yeah, this is the kind of person you would send to Westeros to be like, listen, don't worry about all that other stuff. Don't worry about the child slavery. Don't worry about everything else we're involved with. We're cool. We just believe in the Lord of Light. The Lord of Light is great. Have a drink. That's kind of what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Give the Undertaker. Join our faith. We have booze and parties. Yeah, that's that's basically what Thoros was sent to do. He's putting a good face on a horrible, horrible um, organization. And it's also the idea that convincing the king of Westeros and like and and all of Westeros itself to swing to the faith of, away from the faith of the seventy old gods is a pretty big goal and it's a pretty important thing for them. So um, it would it would honestly drastically increase their power because they would essentially have sway over both sides in the narrow sea. Converting a king could be a, a massive boon for them in terms of their long-term stop the darkness thing <clears throat> the West Jersey version of animal house yeah kind of that's kind of what he's doing uh we also learned that thoros is a flair for combat uh we'll get back to that in a little bit so he tries and fails on Ares. 
the pyromancers and their magic is apparently way more enticing for Ares. Thoros, um, although makes it clear he did not super try very hard at getting Ares to convert. The things that made him a really good marketer for the faith of for the faith of Rolor also made him extremely tempted by everything in King's Landing. Uh, he's on his own in King's Landing. He's finally not under the heel of the Red Priests. He's got money, no oversight. So how did you think that went? How do you think Thoros on his own in King's Landing went? The answer, not great, Bob. Not great. Uh, he carried on basically the same as he did at the Red Temple. He was drinking. He was partying. Uh, in the show, he he brags that he had basically every sex worker in King's Landing. He went to tourneys and parties and stayed at court and essentially just high-fived everybody. Uh, it didn't work on Ares, but, you know, can't win them all. Thoros essentially just treats it like um, a freshman at college. A very, like a frat, no, a frat boy, a frat boy freshman. That's kind of what he did. The fun, though, uh, abruptly ends with the sack of King's Landing which Thoros was uh, present for on the side of the Targaryens. He was inside the city when it happened. So this appears to have uh, quite a peculiar effect on Thoros. This is when we start hearing about his habit of dipping swords in wildfire and also became widely known for being a great fearless fighter and, uh, and jousting. And afterwards, he started taking part in a lot of melees, and he would honestly win them quite a lot due to his old flaming sword trick. Um, there's a quote later on, but basically having a flaming sword would freak out everybody and their horses and then he would win easily. But it turns out he actually is quite a good fighter. Uh, and this is another question from Eric F. He says, how and when did Thoros learn to fight with a sword uh, in light of him being raised by the Red Priests? Sneaking out to the bath uh, barroom brawls doesn't equal formal training with armor. It appears the fact that he can joust and he fights with melees is that he probably made friends with um, some men at arms, um, master at arms, maybe in King's Landing, lords and knights and stuff like that. And he appears, I mean, he has a natural talent for it, but he appears to have gotten some tutoring. I would guess that the Robert's Rebellion was kind of a wake up call for um, Thoros to start taking this more seriously because he was really helpless during the um, during the sack. He had he's on his own over there. There's no organization to protect him. The faith isn't going to protect him. The alchemists are gone. It's uh, it's not it's not great for him at this point. Um, it's also quite possible that he was taught by the fiery hand aspect of the Red Temple. They're, they're warrior sons, basically, that um, they taught him swordplay. But he clearly has gotten a Westerosi training despite being from Mir. So somebody did it. I would guess it would be his friends at court for how he picked that up. And it apparently worked. Um, his charms, unfortunately, did not work on Ares, but they worked immensely on his brother from another mother, King Robert Baratheon. George draws explicit comparisons between Thoros and Robert, saying not only were they great friends. I mean, Robert's great friends with like Ned Stark, but they are nothing alike. Thoros and Robert are basically exactly the same. <laughs> they are extremely like in temperament uh, when we meet them, honestly, like body type at that point, their behavior, the way they treat people, the way they their general outlook on the world seems basically identical. You know, the drinking, the womanizing, filing melees and tourneys, super gregarious, makes fast friends. Um, there's a quote here from actually this is from Jamie. He says, well, he had the power to match Robert Baratheon drink for drink. And there are few enough who could say that. Jamie had once heard Thoros tell the king to become a red priest because the robes hid the wine stains so well. Robert had laughed so hard he'd spilt ale over Cersei's sink and mantle. Oh, Thoros. <laughs> um, 
And then there's uh, this exchange here between Arya and Gendry. She screwed up her face trying to remember if her father had ever talked about Thoros. He isn't very priestly, is he? No, Gendry admitted. Master Mott said Thoros could outdrink even King Robert. They are peas in a pod, he told me, both gluttons and sots. Um, so they're like this. Thoros and Robert were bros. Exactly alike. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good call, Isabel. <laughs> Robert and Thoros shared a single brain cell. Well, about that single brain cell, they also had a particular trait that they shared, and that is extreme recklessness that often gets mistook for bravery. And that's where we get to the Siege of Pike. So Valon's rebellion is happening, which it seems very likely that Euron engineered, and they have driven back the Ironborn to Pike. Uh, Thoros at this point is a courtier at Robert's court. He's not expected to do anything in service of the realm. He is just a red priest. When they go off to war, he could stay behind and do whatever he wants. Um, he's also Robert's good friend, so he's basically immune from service if he wants to, but Thoros doesn't want to stay behind when everyone goes to sack the Ironborn and essentially kick them in the face. Um, he goes to the Siege of Pike. He joins Robert's army and he made a name for, well, a, a realm wide name for himself by doing something incredibly, incredibly stupid. Uh, this is the quote it said he liked feasts and tourneys. And that's why Robert was so fond of him. And this Thoros was brave. When the walls of Pike crashed down, he was the first through the breach. He fought with one of his flaming swords, setting Iron Man on fire with every slash. And this this is another one from the uh, the hands tourney. The girls giggled over the warrior priest Thoros Amir with his flapping red uh, red robes and shaven head. This is another thing, uh, just like off topic. Thoros in the books at first has a shaved head. He doesn't have the long scraggly hair when we, we see him from the show. That comes later. But um, until the Septos told them that he once scaled the walls of Pike with a flaming sword in hand. So why is this a stupid idea? Well, it's because the first man through the walls or a breach often mean you're going to be the one that dies. The waiting defenders are essentially sitting there going like, um, with their spears and their swords for the first guy through to kill him. So you don't want to be the first guy through the breach a lot of the time. But Thoros did it anyway. He dipped his swords in wildfire. By the way, that's how he did it. Beric in the show lights his sword on fire with like blood magic. It looks like Thoros lit his swords on fire by dipping them in wildfire and then lighting them. Um, yeah, Shorty Jedi, he was so drunk, he couldn't remember it. That's probably true. Uh, that's from the show, right? Um, he led the incursion and his display with his flaming swords and killing everybody and lighting people on fire scared the Ironborn so much that the um, the breach went forward and they won easily, largely because of Thoros's bravery or, I, I don't know, like, totally reckless behavior it's yeah that's right it is heroic luminous ran but it's also dumb like you don't want to be that guy but robert baratheon would want to be that guy robert baratheon loved those kind of guys and he prided himself on being the kind of person who would lead from the front the kind of person who would be the first through the breach swinging his uh his war hammer on everybody you know he he really he felt that he was a symbol to his troops in battle and bloodlust really got through to robert so it's, this is another way that they're almost exactly alike in personality. Um, in a way, you can you can probably see why Robert kept Thoros around th as he aged. And that is the fact that Thoros is basically living what Robert wants his life to be like. Robert is no longer no longer jousts. He no longer fights in the melees. He kind of has to sneak around on Cersei. Not not a ton. He doesn't uh, he doesn't <laughs> he's not exactly that stealthy about it. But, you know. 
he's kind of trapped in by his job by being king. There's expectations of him. Um, so instead, he gets to essentially watch an avatar of himself um, in Thoros that go out goes out and does all the things he wants. He gets to fight in the melees. He gets to go to the tourneys. He gets to party in all the pubs and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it reminds him of his life before he was crowned. Um, and again, the reputations are nearly identical. And this also works really well for the reader um, because a lot of people have wondered because we haven't seen Robert's Rebellion. What was Robert like before he was king? What was he like, you know, just being a normal person? Well, Thoros, look at Thoros. That's what he was like. That's what he was like as a young man. Um, and that also lets you, George is really fond of these like doppelgangers of characters out there. Like uh, the most popular one out there is basically like Mance and Rhaegar Targaryen, where a lot of people see common traits in Mance that Rhaegar had as well. Now, he's not literally Rhaegar, but he has enough of them that it lets George add characterization to him in a way that he doesn't need to use flashbacks for. <clears throat> much in the same way here look at thoros that's young robert much in the same way like the five-year gap characters i've talked about you know he he does this kind of thing often it's one of his favorite things he he doesn't want to change the character but he essentially uses these characters to write like little short stories about them in like another world uh let's see here how many we got watching we got 184 thank you guys for hanging out on this fine saturday talking some thoros amir uh slam that nf and like button as i said uh, 150 likes Put on my old wizard hat. And um, actually, we got to 200 last time. And then I uh, Daisy K in the chat. She won a shirt off that. So, you know, slam the like button and good things will happen. <laughs> uh, so that's some that's some very good characterization for Thoros. What you should understand about him, what background he's coming from, all these other kind of things. So then we get to the current story. We're now actually in the books. We're now in the current timeline. So we get the hands turning and the hunt for the mountain Gregor, Gregor Clegane. So the first time that Thoros shows up is on the page is the hands turning for Ned Stark, where again, he's basically standing in for Robert. Robert has not been allowed to joust or act to fight in the melee. Thoros does instead. The notable thing we hear about uh, about <clears throat> about Thoros in the tourney is that he unseats Beric. This is the first interaction between the two of them. They joust against each other. Thoros wins and knocks uh, Beric off, which again goes to the idea that somebody has put a lot of effort into training Thoros to be good at these things. Um, then he goes on to win the melee itself, which is really impressive considering who was fighting. Uh, quote here is the melee went on for three hours. Near 40 men took part, free riders and hedge knights and new made squires in search of a reputation. They fought with blunted weapons in the chaos of mud and blood, small troops fighting together and then turning on each other as alliances form and fractured until only one man was left standing. The victor was the red priest, Thoros of Mir, a madman who shaved his head and fought with a flaming sword. He had won melees before. The fire sword frightened the mounts of the other riders and nothing frightened Thoros. The final tally was three broken limbs, a shattered collarbone, a dozen smash figures, two horses that had to be put down and more cut sprains and bruises than anyone cared to count. Ned was desperately <laughs> pleased that Robert had not taken part. Yes, fearless is one way of describing Thoros, or I, I guess though another way of saying it is that he's kind of unconcerned about dying. Um, I don't know if he's if he's like actively suicidal, but it doesn't seem like he really cares whether he lives or dies. His behavior at the Siege of Pike, his behavior in the melees, the jousts, uh, the way he lives his life. It, it seems like Thoros is destined for an early grave and he doesn't really seem to care. That's that's kind of the path he's on at this point. Um, 
He's he, yeah, he doesn't really have goals. He doesn't really have a mission because he does not. He's not really trying to convert anyone to the faith of Rolor at this point. He's just kind of, you know, floating on through life. Oh, that's right. Thoros did defeat Sandor. Yeah, he's he's a really good fighter, although the fire part definitely helped against Sandor. Um, oh, it's his birthday. Happy birthday to um, Rory McCann, wherever you are out there, buddy. What a, what a blessed day. Chloe and Emmett are getting married and it's Rory McCann's birthday. I wonder if Chloe did that on purpose. She has a real love for Sandor. Holy shit. I wonder if she did do that on purpose. <clears throat> uh, so the next thing we hear about them is Ned picked Ned's um, Thoros is picked by Ned Stark along with Beric to go hunt down the mountain Grigor Clegane after the capture of Tyrion. And this is the start of the War of the Five Kings. Um, I noted during the Barrack stream that Barrack is not really known for his skill with the sword or really skill command, but Thoros is. He's Rome, uh, realm renowned for his exploits at Pike, his skill at the melee. He's re- he's known for being a really good fighter, and he's also been on campaign before. He's been in a real war where it's unclear if Barrack ever has. So Barrack is giving command, being a lord of a not a great house, but a pretty good house, <laughs> a good house. Thoros is the one that's seemingly probably sent along to make sure Beric doesn't die. Um, a fun way I was thinking about this for this relationship. So if you think of Thoros of Mir as Robert Baratheon, they are one and the same, basically. That's what George has been telling us. Okay, so Ned sends Robert basically out into the Riverlands, and then he sends Beric. Beric, I think if you look at his character and his beliefs and what's important to him, he seems a lot like Ned Stark. Um, you know, they have similar beliefs of justice and duty and they're serving the king and even general temperament. And they also have this weird, unlikely friendship. That's one of those things about Ned and Robert that kind of makes people like scratch their heads a little bit. It's like, well, what are these two like about each other? Like they're totally different. Ned's a a shy little guy. Well, he's not little, but he's a shy person. He, um, he doesn't enjoy going out drinking and partying and nailing every woman within a mile like Robert does. He doesn't enjoy tourneys. Robert does all those things. They're kind of like an odd couple. And the same thing here for Beric and Thoros. Um, I think that's I think this is like a, an insert by George for the idea that Robert wants to leave King's Landing, leave behind his throne and just go out into the world with Ned and travel and have fun. Um, just being like hedge knights, basically. I think that Beric and Thoros are sort of George doing an insert of that relationship. What would it actually be like if they went out there and did that thing? Well, Thoros and, and uh, Beric. And actually, there's some weird connections between uh, Beric and Ned. Like, for instance, that uh, Beric is betrothed to um, Illyria Dane. And one of the important things we learned from the um, turning at Harrenhal and Ned Stark is that he apparently had a big crush on Ashar Dane. And he was not betrothed at the time. There was a good chance that Ned may have ended up married to Ashar if the uh, Robert's Rebellion didn't happen. Um, they also have a similar sort of relationship where Beric and House Dondarrion, as I was talking about during that stream, sort of serves as the the guard against the Dornish. Um, being one of the marcher lords right at uh, Blackhaven's at the one of the one of the passes, and the Dondarrions throughout history would very much be on guard to stop invaders from the south, much in the way the Starks are their role or one of their roles is to stop the invaders from the north. So it seems like kind of one in the same. Um, uh, that's a good point, Jay Moore. Arya meets alternate universe family members uh, like her brother from another mother, Sandor. Yep. I think Arya is having um, our George is having Arya meet a lot of alternate universe 
versions of people she knows, like Barrack as a young Ned, that kind of thing. Um, but I thought that was kind of a fun way to read them, if you, <laughs> especially like the idea that like Arya asks Thoros if she can if he can bring back Ned, and Thoros says no. But then Barrack's right there, and it's like, well, he kind of did. He brought back um, a guy who's honestly very similar to her father. So you can imagine him typing away on his word star, snickering to himself like he 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 he. Aha, uh-huh. that is Ned. That is Robert. This is what it would be like if they were like hedge knights or if we if I wrote a Dunkin egg about them, that kind of thing. <clears throat> Sent along, make sure he didn't die hey, forever. Yeah, that one kind of failed. But I think I, I, in a in a much more grounded sense, not in like a in an analysis way, I think that is why Thoros was chosen. He's there to be the um, the steady hand for Beric, basically. Um, so then we get to the uh, the Mummers four. This is the unfortunate site of Beric's first death uh discussed this in the lady stoneheart video and also the live stream um Beric is killed gets the old lance through the heart Thoros freaks out and uh, and um tries to save him but there's honestly quite a big difference between what happens in the show with Beric's resurrection and what happens in the books um so here's the quote here i have no magic child only prayers the first time his lordship had a hole through him and blood in his mouth I knew there was no hope. So when his torn, so when his poor torn chest stopped moving, I gave him the good God's own kiss to send him on his way. I filled my mouth with fire and breathed the flames inside him down his throat to lungs and heart and soul. The last kiss it is called. And many a time I saw the old priests bestowed on the Lord's servants as they died. I had given it a time or two myself as all priests must, but never before had I felt a dead man shudder as the fire filled him nor seen his eyes come open. It was not me who raised him, my lady. It was the Lord, where lore is not done with him. Life is warmth, and warmth is fire, and fire is God's and God's alone. So in the show, Thoros basically prays. Uh, we see that in the scene I put in the video where he essentially like drops to his knees, puts his hand on Beric, and prays to Rolor. Beric comes back to life. This is very different. Thoros can breathe fire? He is, is Thoros... Thoros a dragon. I don't know. All I'm saying is, I don't know, but he's breathing fire. Thoros can fill his mouth with fire and breathing into people's lungs. What the hell is that? Um, where where's where's San Rixian? We need to get her to draw <laughs> Thoros as a dragon. Um, yeah, what the I, that one blows my mind. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he breathes fire into it. Like when Thoros is walking around, can he just like casually just turn his head and just breathe fire on stuff? Um <sighs> I don't know what's going on here. Oh, and also for why this works. So we learn that after um, after the dragons are hatched by Daenerys, that fire magic in general is working a lot better. Uh, we know that the alchemists are better able to make um, their wildfire. Their spells are working. That's actually one of the things the one of the alchemists asked Tyrion just kind of innocently, like, do you know if any dragons are around? Because everything's working real good. Uh, we also learn in Karth um, from Quaith that <clears throat> fire mages in in the city have been their magic is working better. Like the ladder cl- uh, climber in Karth, he makes a fire ladder and climbs up it. Um, so this may have something to do with the return of dragons. Uh, Aaron M asks, is it a literal fire or metal for metaphorical fire? It's literal fire. There's a quote later. He literally does breathe fire like a dragon into Barrack's mouth. I don't know how the hell he does it. <clears throat> I don't know if. George is ever going to address the fact that he made a character who can who can a human character who can breathe fire, but he did it. So that raises a lot of questions like can Melisandre do that? Can um, Makoro? Can Bonero? Not really sure. 
but it seems to be a, a real thing. But here's the problem with the idea that this has something to do, that this is just Danny, that like the dragons are back and that's the reason this old spell, which didn't used to work, is now creating fire whites in Barrack. We don't hear about any other resurrected people in Essos. There's a lot of red priests out there. There's a lot of people that die and it's apparently fairly common for the red priests to give the last kiss to the dead. Um, they aren't coming back to life. As far as we know, maybe they really are. Maybe this is something that we'll find in the Winds of Winter. Panero will some of you talk to Panero and Mercoro and be like, oh, yeah, we've noticed that uh, people are coming back to life. But as far as we know, this is the only time it's working in the entire world. So this kind of goes to it really makes the question more difficult to answer because it implies intentionality that Barak is being brought back by Thoros in particular, specifically. And that's kind of the conclusion that Thoros comes to. He's like, well, I don't know why this happened, but it happened to us. So this must mean something because holy shit, I can bring people back from the dead. But only this guy, apparently. <clears throat> Thoros uses fire to brush his teeth. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, oh, so the quote I was talking about for why it's not metaphorical, um, Beric describes himself coming back to life, and he says that he woke up with the taste of fire in his lungs, his throat, and his mouth. So it is not, it's not, um, it's not like him doing CPR. Beric says that he remembers, like, every time he comes back to life, that essentially Thoros has breathed fire into his body. So that is wild. Real stuff. <laughs> I can understand that why um, they may have cut this part from the show because it's really hard to explain. And maybe we'll make more sense later. Maybe Nair will talk about it. Makora will hear more about it in Essos that the dead are rising. But as far as we know, this is the only one. Uh, so he creates what George calls a fire white. This is um, an undead person. They are no longer alive biologically. The way George described it, he said, like, blood no longer pumps in his veins. It's it's essentially the same as the whites, but instead of being under the thrall of the others, as the ice whites are, uh, George says that he's reanimated by fire, whatever that means. Yeah, it's just straight magic. It's it's honest to God magic. Fire priests can apparently breathe fire. OK, I guess that's the thing we just have to deal with. now. <laughs> um, another strange thing about this one is it doesn't seem to harm Thoros to use um, to resurrect Beric over and over again. When Stannis uses the shadow baby to go kill Renly and um, Courtney Penrose, Thor, like Stannis comes, wakes up and Davos comments that he looks visibly older, like he has aged five to ten years, like overnight. Thoros doesn't seem worse to aware. He doesn't he's not like aging rapidly. Um, and Beric himself, when he gives the last kiss to Catelyn Stark, spoiler alert, Beric dies. Um, he dies. It kills Beric to do this. So it's confusing when you're thinking about Thoros, because not only is he bringing back Beric six times to no ill effects, he himself seems um, more alive than ever personally. Like he's found his, his purpose. He's found a thing to live for. It's like he's woken up from like 20 years of a drunken haze. So no idea what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> And the, th the effect, as I was talking about on Thoros, is tremendous. The red priest who didn't believe in his religion or his cause is suddenly presented with the fact that his God's power is real. And not only that, it can bring people back from the dead. Um, I seem to remember that there's like there's a religion out there where a similar thing happened. And now it's like a big deal. <laughs> 
where some guy, you know, he he came back from the dead after a few days and it was, you know, people have not forgotten that. And that's kind of what's going on here with Thoros. He is he has to he has to live with the fact now that it's not a trick for the masses. It's not a just a political or a greedy organization on its own lore or whatever it is that brought back Barrick is real and he now has to deal with that um so it's not really just Barrick that's being resurrected but thoros as well this is a metaphorical uh resurrection that he is being reborn as almost a new man he has new purpose he has a new mission he has um he has a reason for living which he, he clearly did not have before um so the two of them after Barrick comes back from the dead they gather survivors from the mother's form and they form the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, also, after the death of Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon, they at first they sort of uh, seek to continue their mission about bringing um, of bringing the mountain to justice. But it sort of it sort of balloons outwards into um, kind of a larger defense of the common folk specifically in the Riverlands. Um, like that was the thing that Burger Clegane was doing that um, needed him being brought to justice. He was killing, raping, stealing, destroying everything. So they kind of see themselves as, huh, a shield that guards, that guards the realm of men. Weird. That comes up again, but yeah, this, they are essentially acting like the, uh, the night's watch in the riverlands, uh, def- defending the people against the, the high Lords and their squabbles. He also um, basically actually starts converting people to the faith of Rolor, a thing he previously had not seemed to do in 14 years. Um, oh, it's hat time. All right. Hang on a second. Let me grab this baby. Oh, let me sit up to cover the good hair. Yeah, it's pretty. Oh, there we go. Big old wizard hat. <laughs> oh, I wasn't even talking to my microphone. I hope you could hear me. Thank you guys for uh, slamming that NF and like button. Um, oh, up to 200 people watch right now. Hey, everybody. We're going to talk some more about Thoros. <clears throat> yes, Luminous Rain. I'd start praying a lot more if God was suddenly proven to be real. Yeah. If it was like, if people started coming back from the dead around you, what are you supposed to do? This is, it is a fact of life now that Thoros deals with. He's like, all right, well, what were we trying to do? Before Beric was resurrected. Well, we were trying to stop Beric again and help the small folks. So that largely becomes their goal going forwards. This is a sign from literal God to Thoros that he he's on the right path or Beric had unfinished business. And that's kind of how they treat it. They just sort of move forwards with that plan, expanding outwards, believing that that's why Beric was brought back. They need to be the, um, is that a robe with a waffle on his chair? No, it's a, uh, it's a blanket, ass waffle blanket from my, uh, threadless shop. Um, threadless, uh, let me pull that one up. There we go. Uh, joemagician.threadless.com. It's in the description. Yeah. Joemagician.threadless.com. You can get the ass waffle and all those cool designs there um, on shirts and blankets and all that other kind of stuff. Some some lucky people out there have ass waffle uh, leggings, which is amazing. They look they look incredible. Um, I wore this. I wore the shirt out today, Sarah. I went to Dunkin Donuts with this on. Nobody said anything. Nobody even looked at me. But, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, the hat would be a little tough. I would look quite foolish. So like I was saying, um, not only does he start actively believing in R'hllor and it's just like this giant life-changing moment for him, he starts converting other people. Basically, the Brother Without Banners is a almost a religious organization at this point. They all follow the faith of R'hllor. Uh, what's an ass waffle? <laughs> um, 
So it's it's a way of pronouncing a song of ice and fire. If you take the all the letters A S O I A F, it was a joke from a while ago from Maester Monthly where we essentially how do you pronounce that if you want to say it as a word? So we said asswaff, and then if you like asswaff, then you are an ass waffle. So peach waffle, peach waffle. There we go. Boom. There we go. <laughs> I think everyone just accepts that there's weird shirts out there, but it is a lovely shirt. Um, and it 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 doesn't just have like a psychological effect on Thoros. It literally has a physical effect on him. When we first meet him, he's seen as kind of um, like Robert is at the end of his life. He's he's overweight. He's seen as quite foolish. He's seen as a drunken sot. He's seen as somebody that's going to find their way into an early grave, basically. Um, however, after a year living as an outlaw, few recognize him anymore. This is what we call the Thoros glow up. He glows the F up. <laughs> uh, so this is between him and Sandor. Uh, Thoros of Mir, he used to shave your head to betoken a tumble heart. But in truth, my heart was vain. Besides, I lost my razor in the woods. The priest slapped his belly. I am less than I was, but more. A year in the wild will melt the flesh off a man. Would that I could find a tailor to take in my skin. I might look young again. And pretty maids would shower me with kisses. Only the blind, only the blind ones, priest. The outlaws hooted, none so loud as Thoros. Just so. Yet I am not the false priest you knew. The Lord of Light has woken in my heart. Many powers longs at the sleep are waking. There are forces moving in the land. I have seen them in my flames. <laughs> the Thermos of Mir. Oh my God. Yeah, Thoros's glow up is real. He is. Um. He look in the books. He now looks a lot more like the show version. Uh, he's lost a ton of weight. He he eventually will definitely get a man bun in the winds of winter. Um, he, basically, no one recognizes him anymore. He's a completely different person. Um, and Thoros is unexpectedly at this point uh, succeeding in the mission he was sent to Westeros to do. He is making a legitimate foothold for the faith of lore in Westeros, although not through the king, but through the good works of the common people. And honestly, this is this strategy, while it's not what he was sent to Westeros to do, is much more in line with the preachings we see from Bonero in the Red Temple in Volantis, where he's talking a lot about the common people rising up against the triarchs of Volantis and not opposing Daenerys. He's making a very uh, class based argument that it is a moral imperative that the adherents of R'hllor help Danny, who is Zorhai, come again and is going to free the slaves, basically. So Thoros going for a grassroots, he's not doing this on purpose. It's just kind of happening now because he actually believes in what he's doing. He has Beric to show people and they're doing good works for people. And it's convincing those in Westeros that, hey, maybe this this faith or lore isn't a bad thing. Maybe it's actually kind of good. Um, it, it's, a, it's like a, a more realistic attempt at how you end up with these like um, these religions popping up. It it has to be it has to be appealing to people in some way. Coming back from the dead is a pretty big appeal. But also the fact that Thoros is setting a really good example for and the Brotherhood are setting a really good example for the the regular people throughout Westeros of like what somebody who follows Relore is like. They're not like definitely not like the child slavers and and Essos, but, you know, the Brotherhood, which has a lot of support. Um, and also, this is a weird part, too. After Barrett comes back. Um, Thoros's fire reading greatly improves. Uh, he said he could sometimes see things, but it's become like a real tactical weapon for, um, for the brotherhood. Uh, so here we go. Jack be lucky, hack some dry wood from a stall while Notch and Merritt gathered straw for kindling. Thoros himself struck the spark. 
and Lem fanned the flames with his big yellow cloak until they roared and swirled. Soon it was almost hot. Soon it grew almost hot inside the stable. Thoreau sat before it, cross-legged, devouring the flames with his eyes, just as he had a just as he had a top high heart. Arya watched him closely, and once his lips moved, she thought she heard him mutter, "River Run." Lannisters, Thoreau said, roaring red and gold. He lurched to his feet and went to Lord Beric. Lem and Tom wasted no time joining them. Arya could not make out what they were saying, but the simmer kept glancing at her. And one time Lem got so angry he pounded a fist against the wall. That was when Lord Beric gestured for her to come closer. It was the last thing she wanted to do, but Harwin put a hand on the smaller back and pushed her forward. So she took two steps and hesitated full of dread. My lord, she waited to hear what Beric would say. So not only is the ghost of Highheart definitely aiding the Brotherhood, but Thoros is too. He is legitimately seeing things in the flames. He is seeing things as they happen. He is seeing the future. Um, and seems unlike Melisandre, he might be correctly interpreting them, which makes him a very dangerous weapon. Um, I, I talked about this during the Beric stream, but yeah, not only the ghost of Highheart, but Thoros is largely behind the success of their organization. Um, not only bringing back Beric over and over again as a symbol of the power of the faith, but also his fire readings. These are legitimately very, very useful. Um, but part of the problem here is that Thoros is really starting to regret the power that he somehow is wielding. And it's specifically that it is destroying Beric Dondarrion with every new life or every return to life or undeath or whatever he is at this point. <clears throat> I got the quote here. The red priest bowed his head. It is R'hllor who brings you back, my lord, the lord of light. I am only his instrument. How many times, Lord Beric insisted. Six, Thora said reluctantly, and each time is harder. You have grown reckless, my lord. Is death so very sweet? They're also, not only is this destroying Beric, um, this is the, the famous quote about him being his mother. Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle in the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry, but I could not find the castle today, nor tell you the color of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on that bloody grass field in that grove of ash with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother, Thoros? Arya stared at the red at the mirish priest. All shaggy hair and pink rads and bits of old armor. Grey stubble covered his cheeks and the sagging skin beneath his chin. He did not look much like the wizards in old Nan's stories, but even so. So this is the, the problem that even though the lore as... Thoros has interpreted it, has revealed himself to the Red Priest, he's he's rethinking it in terms of just like how much it is destroying his friend. Like, is it worth it to come back six times if you lose everything it meant to be who you are? Like, Beric's clearly quite unhappy with the org with what's happened to it at this point. I don't think he wants to be dead, but I don't know if he wants to be uh, undead like he is now. And it's one of those things where just because R'hllor is now real, doesn't mean what he wants from Beric and Thoros is a good thing. And it seems like Thoros is really starting to question, like, what are we doing here? Like, I thought we were trying, we were serving R'hllor by continuing to protect the small folk from the lords. But it's like, it seems like you're like R'hllor is just torturing Beric and we're not making any progress, really. Like, we haven't stopped the Starks and the Lannisters from tearing up the Riverlands. People are being hanged all over the place. They can't. They can't do anything. So it's like, are they just being messed with at this point? Um, and that starts to really get to Thoros as a character. It's it's very interesting that George essentially has Thoros go on this arc where he's like, he's not believing, he's not believing, he's not believing. He really believes he's up here. And now he's kind of on the downslope again. He's like, well, what does this mean? <laughs> like, 
what the hell? What is what is Relora's plan? Why us? Seems like this sucks. And that's that would be a very tough realization to deal with. The idea that your God is real and he doesn't give a shit about you and you don't know what he wants. Just because like you can see in the flames and just because Barrack's alive, that is not a understanding of strategy on any kind of scale that Thoros can understand. Um, so then we get to the old the rise of Lady Stoneheart. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, the, the problems with Barrack and Thoros doubting the wisdom of his Lord's power comes to a head when they come across the body of Catelyn Tully. Um, this is Thoros talking to Brienne. He's talking about her coming back to life. She is, said Thoros of Mir. The phrase slashed, slashed her throat from ear to ear. When we found her by the river, she was three days dead. Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it. So Lord Beric put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And she rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. So Thoros is literally saying like, this is horrifying. Like, I don't know what I'm in for at this point. He is, he didn't want to do it at all. And why he refuses to do it. I talked about this a bit in my video and the, the live streams about it, but I think it's pretty clear that the ravages of the effect of these resurrections on Beric have really convinced Thoros that like, maybe he shouldn't bring people back from the dead anymore. Like this seems like a terrible idea. Um, you know how he's slowly losing all of parts of himself and that Thoros fears what um, what Catelyn will be like if she comes back from the dead after three days. This also brings up another point. Um, so Thoros, as far as we know, has not brought back anybody else from the dead, um, which either speaks to the fact that the Brotherhood is so good at, at being um, outlaws that they haven't nobody has died except Beric, or that Thoros has been refusing to bring back anybody else from the dead, or it doesn't work with anybody else. Um, we it's not really clear the example of Barrack giving his life for Stoneheart again you you have to try and pick out intentionality from it could Barrack have brought back anybody else or could he only bring back Catelyn and that's one of the struggles of faith that Thoros is really going through he's like I don't know it's what what is is there a plan here or like, does it have anything to do with me? Thoros doesn't think it has anything to do with him. Um, and he's beginning to doubt the fact that, like, if Relora has a plan, does he even care about that plan when it brings back somebody like Stoneheart? Like, he under he thought he understood that the resurrection of Beric Dondarrion was essentially the Lord of Light being, like, a good thing. Bring back Beric so you can stop people from dying and suffering. Help out those in need. That's a great message. But then he also brings back Stoneheart who is a, as I talked about in my video, a, a rage and hate machine who was killing as many people as she can, hanging people left and right with no mercy, no justice. And how is he supposed to essentially balance the fact that his Lord of Light thinks that's okay to bring back from the dead too? Um, yeah, a, a giant crisis of faith. Yeah, and Thoros, who was previously on his fiery glow up uh, and found his purpose is sinking back into becoming the broken man he was before. Um, by the time we meet up with him with Brienne, the, the picture of somebody who you know has a real purpose of their life and has found meaning in it has kind of returned to the shabby, the shabby priest that doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, one of the most infamous quotes, I think I said this at the beginning, but um we were king's men when we began, the man told her, but king's men must have a king and we have none. We are brothers too, but now our brotherhood is broken. I do not know who we are, if truth be told, nor where we might be going. 
I only know the road is dark. The fires have not shows me have not shown me what lies in the end. I know where it ends. I have seen the corpses in the trees. Fires, Brienne repeated. All, all at once she understood. You are the merest priest, the red wizard. He looked down at his ragged rose and smiled ruefully. The pink pretender, rather. I am Thoros, late of Mir. I, a bad priest and a worse wizard. He's really struggling to, to comprehend how Stoneheart's campaign of blood and vengeance can serve the purposes of the Lord of Light and Justice. And honestly feels like they no longer serve justice at all, which again makes him question the Lord of Light and if this is a god worth worshiping. Like, as far as he's concerned, Rulor is real, but the fact that he's real doesn't mean maybe that Thoros should do his bidding. Like, how can Beric Dondarrion and Lady Stoneheart be a part of the same plan? Um, my lady, Thoros said, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in the Seven Kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, as they do of milk and honey. And justice? Can that be found in caves? Justice. Thoros smiled, wan- smiled wanely. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we, what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights, and heroes. But some knights are but some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. So, yeah, that's not a good sign for where Thoros is at the moment. This is where we uh, leave off with him in A Dance with Dragons. He is ostensibly following Stoneheart. He, the Brotherhood is splintered. Some of them have left, like Ned Dane, and I think the Mad Huntsman has left as well, along with a few others who are totally unhappy with Stoneheart's reign as their leader. But Thoros has stuck by her. There, it's. I think for him, it's a matter of faith that he still has to stick by where the Lord of Light is leading him, even though he's seriously questioning where that path goes for him. As he says, the path is dark. He doesn't know where it's going. He's having trouble seeing the future. Um, I don't know if that literally means like he can't see in the flames anymore, but uh, kind of like Melisandre, where she asks for how this all ends and the Lord of Light shows her nothing or whatever it is that controls the flames. So this is one thing that's important, I think, about Thoros and his role in the Winds of Winter and the Brotherhood going forward is that of the people that's left within their organization, kind of Harwin and Thoros are the only two left that really have like a spine and anything resembling a moral core anymore um, that I'm not sure how they're going to feel about the Red Wedding 2.0 if it happens. And they're definitely chafing under Stoneheart's reign of terror at this moment. Um, Thoros goes along with it, but he says quite clearly to Brienne that he is questioning everything that's happening and himself. Um, uh, Rosanante, Stoneheart is basically a corpse, not physically strong, right? So it's it's stopping Thoros from forcing her to kiss another fallen comrade. Does this need to be a conscious choice? George is kind of making up the rules of this resurrection as he goes. I don't. I don't know how it works. I don't think anybody does. Um, so I talked about the the Red Wedding 2.0 in the stream in the video and how it seems like Stoneheart's going to kill a lot of Freys and a lot of Lannisters. But one thing I didn't talk about is which members of the Brotherhood Without Banners and in particular Jamie and Brienne, how they may react to this happening. Um, because it's, it's going to be horrifying. Like what if Stoneheart starts ordering the men not just to kill the phrase that are there, but to round up every fray. What if she says we're going to end house fray entirely tonight and they start like hanging children and throwing them into the river or um, all these other horrible things. Thoros is really unhappy at this point. Um, 
he may he may rebel against Stoneheart. He may rebel against R'hllor and say, I don't care if this is your plan. This plan is evil. He really seems to be going that way, that serious misgivings with his um, with Falling Lady Stoneheart. So combined with um, Jamie and Brienne. And this is actually something I was thinking about. The Brienne sort of serves as a a reawakening for Jamie Lannister. He's not a good person, but he's better than he was. And he's doing a lot of self-reflection and trying to stay true to his vows in a way he didn't earlier on in his life. And I'm wondering if Brienne's uh, objective goodness and her devotion to protecting the the innocent and the meek and being a knight and all these things may have a way of um, awakening something in Thoros. She, she does seem to have that effect on a lot of characters where just the the honest earnestness of her and her internal and her goodness that she projects this seems to turn people back from the darkness and Thoros really needs that um so that could be something oh yeah 175 hey thanks guys for slamming that mf and like button um find that i do with that one on the old floor <clears throat> there we go germ hat time <laughs> rocking the turtle i am extremely on brand today ass waffle hat George R. R. Martin hat talking about a minor character that a lot of people don't care about for two hours. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think watching Thoros and how he reacts to Stoneheart's leadership. And if there's a Red Wedding 2.0, if she starts killing people that she that Thoros doesn't think is just what will he do? Will he maybe, maybe he will free Brienne and Jamie. Maybe he will uh, splinter off. There's. I put it in my um in the comments of the last video, like how Stoneheart dies. There's a chance it's Thoros that he um that he gets so unsatisfied with what she's doing that he decides to essentially like um to end the life that she gave, that she is a corrupted version and that something evil maybe. Um oh, did um did they get married? Is that what this picture is? Aaron just posted something in the chat. Um oh, look how happy Emmett is. Oh, it's like he got another year on chapter, but then much, much, much happier. And instead he will have a wonderful person to spend his life with. Oh, that's so free. That's so sweet. This is, yeah, I figured Jeff was going to be at their wedding. Um, I could show it on my screen, but that would be too difficult at the moment. I've never seen Emmett with his hair slicked back either. Oh, he's trying so hard for Chloe today. That's so sweet. Oh, yeah. Click that link if you want some, if you want some feels at the moment. If you want to come back from the horribleness of Lady Stoneheart and Thoros. Um, I mean, Jeff look like brothers. They they basically are brothers at this point. Brothers from another mother. Um, yeah, don't understand. I do think they will be those who approve of massacring the Lancers in the phrase, but I think it's pretty clear that George is setting up Thoros for opposing Stoneheart's continued path of blood, that they he needs something more out of this, that he needs a better purpose than just avenging what is a horrible event, but it's it's really limited. Like, yeah, uh, that's something to really watch out for the Winds of Winter. And the Red Wedding 2.0 and everything going on with Stoneheart um, quite clearly signaling that there's a good chance he's not going to go along with everything. Uh, So one thing that's definitely that I'm really looking forward to with the Winds of Winter and something I'm pretty sure will happen. And unfortunately, this seems to have come from the the show. I know this is going to be upsetting for some of you, but there is a point in the show where Thoros and Beric, Beric's alive in the show almost to the end, where they there's kind of a a splinter group of uh brotherhood without banners in the show that essentially function like stonehearts group where they're going around killing people acting like outlaws just being dicks they're led by uh lem lemon cope in the show lem lemon cloak 
in the show, the Barrack and Thoros essentially catch up with them, hang them, and then essentially say, like, we figured out what we need to do. We finally gotten a handle on the whole R'hllor thing. And that's um, that we we need to go face the actual darkness. Like, that's what the faith of R'hllor is about. If anything, it is about stopping the others, stopping the long night. Um, so I think that's kind of what George is waiting for Thoros to wake up to, or he's going to force him to that. Um, the, that what he's been given, what his purpose is going forwards is not just protecting like these groups of civilians in the riverlands that they need to expand their mission and understand that the real fight is to the North. And I didn't like all the things about Thoros and Barracus in, um, in the later seasons, particularly I thought the, the white hunt and how Thoros died was pretty stupid because they essentially just used him to raise the stakes for Barrack and John by with no Barrack, he can't bring anybody back to life again. So essentially like, oh no, this could be permanent kind of thing, a permanent death. Um, but Thoros as a, as a character arc, I think he has to meet Melisandre. I think he's going to find her somewhere in the North that um, he's going to recognize that his place is not just in the South. It's not just the Riverlands that he's going to remember or be reawoken or see something in the flames that tells him, find Melisandre, go to the wall, stop the others. Because that's where the faith of R'hllor goes to. That's what it's about. Oh, um, Super Chat here from Marigold and Muse, $5. Just a thank you for streaming today. Really lovely li- to listen to you. Oh, thanks. That's really sweet. Appreciate the Super Chat. Um, And I, I honestly think a comparison between Thoros and uh, Melisandre is a really interesting one. Um, Like even on a basic level, Melisandre's plan in Westeros with her um, taking Stannis and converting him to the faith of her lore and then trying to get him on the throne that is the plan the Red Temple gave Thoros. That's what he was supposed to do. Um, and Melisandre is carrying it out. So, I mean, she she ensnared a king. She's converted most of his subjects. And if Stannis wins the throne, I mean, spoiler alert, Stannis is not going to win the throne. But if he could, it would be the um, the main goal of the Red Temple coming to pass in Westeros. So... The two of them, not only do they have a shared uh, background of being given over to the Red Temple of um, and of kind of a similar, yeah, like a similar background, a similar understanding of the world. They have been on similar missions and it could work both ways for Melisandre and Thoros to um, who are both. I'm pretty sure Melisandre is going to question her faith when Stannis dies or fails and she ends up burning Shireen and Thoros is questioning his faith as well. It could be a way for the two of them to um reawaken what they're doing find their faith again and try and serve R'hllor by stopping the others to let go some of the um earthly connections i guess and rediscover what they're what they're being led to uh, i think this would be a really interesting um conversation between the characters and it's so interesting that the show did it the show did it in uh season three i believe uh melisandre shows up to the brotherhood without banners she essentially buys gendry from them but there's a really good conversation between um Beric, uh thoros and melisandre where they talk about like how he got this power um how he brought back Beric, what it's like what it's like on the other side what is the mission of the red priest in westeros um i wonder if that's one of those things that dan and dave i mean they made up that that scene but i wonder if that's something that may come to pass in the winds of winter and george may write it it only makes sense that these two red priests find each other at some point because i don't think thoros is going to die anytime soon and neither is Melisandre. Um, but I also find it interesting that the Baratheon brothers, Robert and Stannis, both 
somehow ended up with red priests trying to convert them to the faith. Um, and they're kind of almost reflections of the kings themselves. I mean, um, Thoros is very much a doppelganger for Robert. And I wonder if that's if George is setting up as a comparison between them that maybe Stannis and Melisandre are much more like in character than a lot of people realize. Like, for instance, George has been has said that Melisandre is one of his least understood characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's one of the reasons that um, he gave her a POV in A Dance of Dragons, because he needed to like explain her because readers weren't getting it. Um, also, kind of an interesting fact, Melisandre doesn't know Melis- doesn't know resurrection works at the moment. Show Melisandre knows it because she met Thoros, who showed her Barak. That information has not gotten to her. So um, if there's a chance of this of Melisandre resurrecting John, like a lot of people think, maybe she'll just give him the last kiss like um, like Thoros did for Barak. But there's also a possibility that Thoros is going to go north and give her that information. Um, but it might be too late, but who knows? Um, that's important information for Melisandre to know that, hey, resurrection's a thing at the moment. Go nuts. Uh, I hope Thoros goes on a road trip with Jamie and Brienne. Yeah, that'd be kind of fun. That'd be a good team up. Uh, we also know that they grabs Sander Clegane. Um, if he's going to come back into the story, he's going to have to be come back for me in the Gravedigger. The show did that, that they used um, Beric and Thoros to essentially get Sandor back. Um, I'm, I don't see a reason why that couldn't happen in the books as well. Um, they have met before. They have, you know, there's a lot of history between them. That's one of the few characters that's active out there in the world that uh, Thoros has a lot of history and actually a lot of dialogue with. When they captured Sandor Clegane, they, um, that was one of the more important ones. Yeah, I, think, I really think that's where uh, Thoros's arc is going. That George has had him messing around the Riverlands with Barak, with Stoneheart, really um, questioning what the Lord of Light is getting him to do. And he's being nudged to really fight the darkness. He's being nudged to go north and face the others. Um, I really hope he doesn't get the the show treatment, like the ridiculousness when they were on the wall when it exploded and the white hunt and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I hope that's not what happened. <laughs> the llama was comforting. Okay, uh, there's always people mowing lawns and blowing leaves around my neighborhood. So, and if it happens, I'm guessing it will happen after the red wedding, the second one that um, Thoros has become truly. He's going to question everything about what he's doing and find a a new way, much like in Amer- in Wet Hot American Summer. He's going to speak to a can of beans and he's going to find his way <laughs> to a new purpose. Um, but yeah, that's. Um, I also think it's interesting that he probably feels like that he's um in a sense carrying forward the uh the legacy of Barak. that he really feels like stoneheart is a corruption of everything that they were fighting for and um he's gonna find a lot of purpose in it a lot of purpose in refocusing why the lord of light did this to him what power he has all these kind of things yes thoros played by chris maloney oh that would be perfect Oh, he'd make a great Thoros Amir. Um, where he ends up at the end of the story, I mean, I don't have a lot of hope that Thoros makes it to the end. Uh, the Wind's a Winner and the Dream of Spring, there's going to be a buzzsaw for characters. Thoros is a kind of character that um, is almost kind of redundant, though, once you have him and Melisandre. So to be kept alive, he has to have a narrative purpose and, and have something that's different from her. But then again, there's also the idea that um, the fiery hand may show up in Westeros. Danny may bring the um, the Red Temple, or at least some of the followers of Panera to Westeros. And 
Thoros and Melisandre could be sort of a um, end up in more of a command role than we previously have ever thought. I mean, his time in the Riverlands, he's largely been a um, almost like a general. Uh, he's been leading troops. He's become experienced in rule of combat and living off the land. He's if you want to if you want to have somebody that is like responsible for all these SOC people that are not used to winter that may be ending up with Danny coming west, then Thoros is a good candidate. And that could be a narrative way that George continues to make him important because he's keeping him alive and he's continuing to give him plot for a reason. It's not just um much like Relore. That's one of that's actually one of my favorite things. Like when people talk about like the gods are cruel and what does the Lord of Light really need? I almost feel that it's like a self-insert from George where he where it's like his characters are confused about what he's doing to them. Um, you know, call the book The Winds of Winter and not have a lot of people die. A lot of people are going to die. But, you know, that that is one thing that Thoros has that Melisandre does it basically. That he is an effective and... Um, motivated leader at this point, uh, especially in the military sense. Although, actually, yeah, Luminous Rain, what if they just wrestle? Yeah, they're just going to arm wrestle. Melisandre, Thoros, arm wrestle for the fate of the Aether Relore and Westeros. Um, especially if you like, can literally breathe fire and the fire sword thing is probably going to end up being important. Um, don't discount the fact that the others are going to show up and Thoros is going to breathe fire like, um, what is his name? Killian from Iron Man 3. <laughs> Where out of nowhere he just breathes fire on the wall. That would be Thoros, flaming swords, breathing fire on people. Um, and there's obviously also the possibility that he's going to be used by George for more resurrections. Um, I know some people have ex- they expressed annoyance with my uh, Rob Star coming back to life idea because it's like so many resurrections all the time. But I think with the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring, you should probably get used to the idea that George is going to be bringing quite a lot of characters back from the dead. Um, or he's going to attempt to, um, especially as whites, that kind of thing. Uh, Ice whites do not simply die at the sword strike, do they? Bear, however, does die repeatedly. That seems like a weak spot in case you raise a fire right against ice whites. That is really confusing that Bear continues to die like a normal person, that you hang him and that you hit him in the head with a mace and that Sandor cuts him in half and it kills him. I don't know how that gels with the fact that, um, as George says, he's not biologically alive. Like, what is happening that is causing him to dead at this point? Um, I- I'm not quite sure how that works, but I think it's definitely like a logical in the sense that um, that it- it's but that's also like a general zombie like thing. It's like, well, what do you exactly are you killing when you kill a fire white or an ice white? Like, how does that work? They don't have like, I don't know. I think it's a good question, but something that's that's really hard to answer because I mean, it's magic. I, I don't think it's I don't think it makes logical sense. Um, uh, let's see here. Isabel Omega, the fucking prologue of resurrection. I'm not surprised he brings back everyone, really. Yeah, there's a lot of resurrection in A Song of Ice and Fire. If you're tired of resurrection, like he is just getting started. Um, although, as Barris Aurelius points out in the chat, the reason the show didn't have Stoneheart was that they didn't want to have a bunch of people coming back from the dead. Yeah, Dan and Dave definitely had a, a lower fantasy idea of um, Game of Thrones. So yeah, that was the reason they cut Stoneheart. Well, one of them was that they didn't—they wanted John's resurrection to be a surprise. Spoiler alert: everyone knew it anyway uh, from the books, and also just like that's how it goes. Um, uh, you could listen to me for another hour. Well, I don't think my voice could go for another hour. Uh, Urias Tosh, which a Song of Ice and Ki- which a fi- Song of Ice and Fire character do you want to go all? 
go out all night drinking with. Um, who would be the best drinking partner? Tyrion ends up being kind of a dick when he gets drunk. Um, so probably not him. Robert would Robert and Thoros would probably be fun for a little bit, but they they seem to have a very specific kind of fun that um I don't know if I'd be down with all the crazy things they get up to when they drink. Um who would be a good drinking partner? They would kind of like dare you into doing shit. Hmm. Who would be a best drinking partner in the Song of Ice and Fire? Maybe one of the wolves. Maybe like Big Bucket Wolf. That'd be kind of fun. I bet he's a I bet he's a wild guy when he's drinking, but probably not as wild as uh, Thoros and and uh, and Robert. Um, uh, fake 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 folk blues says. Um, there are parallels between Thoros and Damfair. Uh, both are priests that have, sh- have showmanship past, which includes a lot of drinking. Yeah, that's true. Thoros and uh, Aaron, that's a good one. Um, if I had more time, I would have gone into it, but that's how it goes. Um, Chris Frank says, I wanted the show to kill characters whom we loved and resurrect them on the side of the others so they'd be killed or be killed by characters to whom they were close. They did that with Ed, I think, and um, a few other characters. But yeah, they didn't really play it up. Like um, one thing I'm looking forward to with um, if the others make it to Winterfell, if they start resurrecting the Starks themselves, they did do that in the show, but they the characters had no idea who they were. Um, it'd be a lot more powerful if the the characters coming back are like identified as who they are. Um, big bucket wool. He's kind of like a Scotsman, and Scotsman can be fun to drink with. Um, go drinking with Ned. I don't think Ned would go drinking with you. He'd just stay home. Um, he'd make the plans and then ditch. Dollars Ed. That's a good one too. Um, pick up with an SCD if you're out with Robert. You out with Robert, you might wake up with a kid. There's a real chance of that. Um, I think that's a, probably about it. We're a little bit over today. Uh, I know Ice and Firecon is going on digital stuff at the moment. So um, after the stream is over, see what they got going on. Uh, lots of panels, lots of fun stuff going on. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do Quiplash again or anything like that. Um, thank you guys for hanging out this Saturday with me. Uh, as you, as I've alluded to many times during this stream. Put out the video recently about Lady Stoneheart and how she may bring back Rob Stark with all the Red Wedding 2.0. Um, upcoming projects, kind of a super secret one that I can't talk about, um, but I did finish reading for the other day. So that's going to be it's going to be different, but I think it's going to be really fun. Um, after that, a video about Danny. That's right. I am going to tempt fate by making a video about Daenerys Targaryen because I like Thoros do dumb things. Um, after that, I, I have a big list of stuff. Uh, we'll get there when we get there, I guess. If you want to support me? Uh, obviously, there's uh, Super Chats here. There's uh, PayPal, uh, Patreon, so you can access to um, upcoming content early, patron-only content. Speaking of, uh, actually, I should have said this earlier. I did a poll over the last few days about what the next patron-only episodes were going to be, and I decided to do uh, Dying of the Light, which is... Oh, knocked over some there we go george r, r. martin's 1977 dying of the light so we're gonna do this uh kind of as a read-through thing on on patron only i'm not gonna put it up on youtube because i think that many people care about dying of the light but should be a good one his sci-fi story about um from what i understand it's about a a planet that's watching a dying star and there's all sorts of hijinks that happen it's, uh really highly some people hate it some people really like it uh maester mary of learning hands podcast really loves this one along with quite a few other people so you guys voted we're gonna do dying of the light next luckily i already have that's a fever dream right next to it um Ice and Fire Con is next up with minor characters in less than an hour. Oh, cool. Um, Somebody can grab some links, throw them in the chat. I will see you all next time. Have a great day.